Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and I'm super excited to welcome back Catherine Firkin. Catherine is a Melbourne journalist currently with CBS New York. She has over a decade of experience and has worked across every medium, print, online, television, and radio. Catherine has been writing fiction from a young age, and she studied literature and journalism at university. Her novels are inspired by the many criminal trials she has covered. We last spoke on episode 185, chatting about sticks and stones. And today we talk about her second fiction book, The Girl Remains. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me back. It's so lovely to see you again. I love seeing repeat guests because it's like, oh, we've already done that whole, you know, chat thing. And now we're just back doing it again. Straight into it. That's it. Now, this book, fabulous, as was well Sticks and Stones. So I was so happy that you got you know your second book out. Can you give us an elevator pitch as to what this one's about? Yeah, I'm. I'm have to say I'm super excited about book number two. It's all focused around a cold case. Three teenage girls head out one night for a little bit of mischief in the coastal town of Blairgowrie in Victoria, but only two of them come back. And it's a really baffling case for detectives at the time because the two girls that come back really can't tell them what happened. They're quite confused. They think there was maybe someone out there in the night with them, but they don't know. And their story sort of seems to keep changing. So this ends up sparking what I describe as one of Australia's most baffling cold cases. At the time, police actually think they have the suspect. There's a local man who's a convicted sex offender they put all their energy and resources into trying to catch this guy, but unfortunately he just doesn't cooperate and they just can't get the evidence together. So the case does lie cold for about 20 years. Wow. Little human remains are found on a beach in Blairgowrie and this is where the book sort of jumps in. Uh, in the present day with my detective Emmett Corbin, 
having to uh, head out to the Mornington Peninsula and work out are the remains of this missing girl and if they are what exactly happened to her. Mm, really interesting and I like that intrigue of 20 years later because if the teenage girls couldn't figure out what was going on then imagine 20 years later you know the stories and the memories and things that have shifted so was that kind of an inspiration for you as well? Yeah I mean I'm always fascinated by cold cases you know for one thing I mean you mentioned I'm a journalist I think it's something that I find really quite intriguing as a concept particularly what it does to the survivors and people around when there's just this huge part of their life that hasn't got a resolution. And I think it's really quite traumatic. And the way that shows up in people, the way it manifests can be really quite interesting. Um, And and the other thing is I just liked the idea of this really sort of baffling disappearance into the night. You know, people who know Blair Gowrie know it's quite a popular sort of little seaside town it's quite you know lovely everyone knows everyone but then in in the summer the tourists sort of flock in so it's an interesting uh demographic and setting for me to place the story and I just sort of had this picture in my head and thought gosh you know what would it do to the town if something this big happened Mm, absolutely and I, I really liked the exploration of past and how it does catch up with you so even though it seems like you know cold case 20 years is quite a long time for it to be a cold case but then eventually the past catches up and I find that really interesting because it's almost that state of you know, kind of waiting for the past to catch up to you and thinking oh no it's okay and then it does did you find that really interesting yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me how, you know, people think they've parked something in their life and they sort of think they can compartmentalise these sort of really traumatic incidents, but almost always in some way it catches up with them, you know, whether that's through a personality trait that manifests or, you know, some sort of fears or paranoia or whether it's as in this case where, you know, it's almost quite literally that the past catches up with them and that everything, all the stories they've told start to unravel Mm. now three teenage girls did you have to channel your past teenage girl to see what teenage girls remember what they were like when you're writing the characters yeah I had so much fun actually with this part of it you know it's set in 1998 and I loved looking back at photos from the 90s and channeling those big velvet hats with the big flowers and (laughs) you know and I love the innocence of girls back then I actually mentioned that as a comment in the book from my detective you know, I love the fact there was no filters and social media back then. They weren't carrying mobile phones. You know, they weren't sort of, you know, the eyelash extensions and the lip injections. And they were very natural girls. And I sort of really liked delving into that. Mm. And you say that because it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, and I grew up obviously in a time without social media and now it's everywhere and you can't avoid it. And it's just very interesting. And I wonder how that's going to impact you. You know, I mean, I know you don't have the answers to this, but it's interesting, you know, as a teenager growing up, only knowing about filters and only knowing about social media. Like I I often wonder what the impact is. And in some ways, we're the guinea pigs of this because it's not been done before. Yeah, I actually feel quite sorry for the generation that's come in um, where social media is almost their entire social life. Mm. I I think back to my own time and, you know, I chose Blake Gary as well because I I was there as a teenager. You know, we had so much fun and none of it was recorded and that, that almost makes it more fun. You know, there's no, there were no parents to sort of be scrolling through our social media feeds. We weren't (laughs) worrying about that. We weren't worrying what we looked like when we Mm. did most of these things. And I really feel there's an innocence that's lost, particularly from girls. There's so much pressure on them that in every moment they have to look the part. 
you know. Mm. And so what I loved was having three girls who could just run amok and just be themselves. Yeah, it's a different time, isn't it? It really is. And I just, yeah, it just baffles me about what what the impact of that is going to be. Hopefully, you know, there might be a swing back to the 90s because there was no, I always say this, there's no greater time to have grown up except in the 80s and 90s. So maybe there'll be this pendulum swing of, you know, we've had enough of always, you know, being recorded and photographed. Maybe we'll go back to a simpler time. I don't know, probably won't be. I think we have to get rid of social media for that. I don't know how, how we achieve that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a better balance because I do see the value in it, as particularly in a year like 2020 when a lot of us were at home or we didn't want to go out so we didn't feel safe or we were in lockdown. And that allowed us to connect with people, you know, and even, you know, for myself, you know, if people are living in another state, I guess you could pick up the phone. <laughs> but, you know, so it has its place, I think, but I'm just not sure if we figured out, me included, how to use it properly. Hmm. I don't know. No, I think that's certainly true. And from a, I guess, a craft aspect for writing a crime novel, I really loved parking the mobile phones. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like you've got this little computer in your pocket the entire time and it ruins some of the mystery and some of the intrigue when you talk about novels. So I also love that aspect of just putting it away and we don't have surveillance, we don't have mobile phones, it's all just set in a much simpler time. Yeah, because I often think having that little computer in your pocket in a crime novel it makes the writing even harder. People can track you. You can just Google something. They can find out your movements or your map or whatever. And I think it ruins the whole crime premise of a crime fiction novel. Yeah, quite often it does. It certainly complicates what you can do, but I also find it a little bit tedious because I, I write police procedurals. So police are obviously, you know, having to investigate all the aspects of the crime. And if all they're doing is searching through social media and scrolling through text messages, I actually find it a bit boring. You know. It doesn't make much of a novel, does it? No. <laughs> That's funny. Now, I am interested in your research, you know, writing a police procedural and your experiences with consulting um, with a lead detective because there has to be some research when you do this because there has to be some things you have to get right or readers who know about these things are going to be going to lose perhaps the story. Yeah, and for me especially, I think I really do really want it to feel real. And, you know, of course I take some creative liberties with the story, but overall I'd love people to get to the the end of The Girl Remains and feel like this is a real case that could have happened. And if it did happen, that this is how police might have responded at the time. So I actually went back and spoke to a lead detective that was involved in a very notorious case around a similar time which was the disappearance of a six-year-old girl called Cherie Beasley in uh, the Mornington Peninsula, one suburb up from where my novel was set. Uh, She disappeared in 1991 and it was a similar set of circumstances, which is why I kind of zeroed in on this crime. Uh, At the time, police were certain they knew who had committed this offence. They were certain she was dead, unfortunately, Um, but they could not crack this guy. They could not make him talk. So they did all this elaborate surveillance. They, in fact, even secretly recorded some therapy sessions he was having, which was very controversial because the therapist didn't even know that she was being recorded. Um, But it was a really interesting discussion with this detective about how do you break someone when they are just not cooperating and when they're clearly not an idiot, when they haven't left a trail for police Mm. to find. What was his advice? (laughs) I'm, I'm intrigued. (laughs) <laughs> well, it was it was all about sort of catching them when they're in their weakest moments. Mm-hmm. And for them, the police decided that in therapy was the one time this guy thought he was safe and not 
under surveillance. And that's why they made this really controversial decision to actually secretly record these private conversations. Um, it was, of course, a bit of a court battle to have that evidence admitted, but they ended up winning and he ended up going uh, behind bars for life. And later on, he even confessed. So I think most people would feel that the ends justify the means, but it was a, a bit of a controversial way for police to operate. And certainly in my novel, my police do some things that are slightly outside the boundaries to try and get this person they suspect to talk. What was really interesting to me with these discussions was how motivated police are to solve these crimes. And particularly when we're talking about cold cases, people that are left behind, it's like their life is left in limbo. Mm. And the detectives suffer just as much or close to as much as the victim's sort of family. They really don't let it rest. It seems to almost haunt them. Mm. And that was really fascinating to me, how much it consumes them and how much they're prepared to do to try and get their version of justice. Mm. Yeah, no, I actually really admire that. And I often think that you cannot possibly immerse, be immersed in all those awful things and those details without it changing you in some way, I think. I mean, you've done a lot of journalism in crime. How does that change you as a writer or a person? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think we spoke about this the first mm, time. We did. But, you know, I remember sort of, I think I said to you when I wrote Sticks and Stones, the first draft was really violent and it surprised mm. me because the end result's not very violent. It's not too violent. And certainly The Girl Remains is not particularly violent. But I've realised I had all these little pieces in my head from some of the court cases that I've covered and I thought I'd put them to bed. Mm. And when I started writing, it was like almost like it was cathartic to get some of these details and descriptions out of my head. Um, and once it was out, I was like, oh, no one wants to read that, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise what was still lurking in my head mm. um, in cases years and years back. Mm. And I'm wondering if that's the same or similar for police when they, you know, find justice. Is that their sort of catharsisism if you like the closure that's that's probably a a good comment and I'm sure there's an element of that you know I think they really don't sleep well until you know they have that result and I think particularly when they are certain they know who's done it yeah person has managed to keep escaping them you know often purely through technicalities or something like that I mean it must be incredibly frustrating Yeah, absolutely. Now, I am interested in your work in media because I'm interested in the media's role in both how it can help, but how it can hamper an investigation. And I'm very interested about that. Can you tell me about the role in media and how it can often hamper an investigation? Yeah, I mean, I think quite often to the general public journalists like myself, we we, we probably look almost like we're scavengers, you know, picking over the carcass, coming in and just getting in the way. But that's not entirely the case a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes absolutely we're in the way and police don't want us there and they'll tell us, you know, not too politely that we're in the way. Um, But also there are times when we actually can be quite useful to the police. Um, Quite often I'll have a story go to air on on TV news at night if I've done a, a sort of a local crime story And the police will be ringing asking me, you know, did you have that witness's contact details? They wouldn't speak to us or we couldn't get onto them. They've said something really interesting. Or, you know, we might stumble across stuff that they just haven't picked up either just, you know, by luck or because they just haven't investigated a certain angle. Mm. The other thing that happens quite often is police will play the media and sometimes with us and sometimes against us. So sometimes they'll say, 
uh, things like, you know, can you make sure you play this footage of this black car? We really want this all over the news, like really run this everywhere because they're trying to get someone under surveillance to react. Mm-hmm. But other times they deliberately mislead us um, because they want the focus to be on something else while they're over here actually performing the, the magic. Wow, that is so interesting. And as a journalist, do you sort of have an inkling as to if you're, uh, you know, being diverted or if you're being used as something that's helpful? Um, yeah, and it's, you know, there are times when you get a bit shocked and you think, oh, I thought, thought we were on the same wavelength. I thought, you know, I trusted you and you deliberately misled me. But it's sort of almost a fun game. You never sort of feel too badly because the police are never doing it just because they hate the media. Yeah. There's always a reason, you know. And as much as I know journos get a bad rap, we want the right result as well at the yeah, end of the course. day. of um, course. So, you know, if something gets the case solved, we're just as keen to make that mm-hmm. happen. Absolutely. And you are communicating with the public because the public, you know, we like these human stories and we like when there's justice and we need to know what's going on in our world. So you have an important role as well. Mm. And I think that's something, you know, in The Girl Remains, I've got uh, my character, Cindy, she's working for the AAP as a photographer. Um, and she's very new to the field and she's desperate to make her mark. And she feels like, you know, she's doing the right thing and she's doing this quite honourable job. And then that sort of sometimes gets in the way of Detective Emmett Corbin. He's on the other side, you know, and he's probably a little bit anti-media, we learn through this book. So I think that's an interesting dynamic. Mm, Absolutely. Now, circling back a little bit to setting, because I just wanted to ask you, and I really like the idea of a place that is small, but then tourists coming in because the dynamics of that setting really changes you know seasonally I guess and I really like the idea of never really knowing anyone even if you are in a small town and you know the monsters living amongst us and I don't know you know if you've had that experience of thinking that you know someone and perhaps they've done something something really awful and you start to question yourself and your own judgments and you think gee I thought you know I'd be able to pick you know, if, if a person was capable of that, but sometimes you really aren't. So I find that psychology, the psychology of that, of people being able to hide who they really are, particularly if they're, you know, doing awful things. I just find that completely fascinating and horrifying at the same time. Yeah, yeah I couldn't have said it any better than you just said it, actually. I'm fascinated by deception and when people live these double lives, you know, those type of criminals in my mind are the scariest. Yeah. They're the ones that are able to sort of often live a seemingly quite normal life. They're the ones that when you go and interview the neighbours, they'll say, oh, they were so quiet and lovely. They were so friendly. Um, and then they've got all these sort of monstrous sort of things going on behind the scenes. And it's very interesting what that does to the fabric of a community. When people start, neighbours start pointing their fingers at each other, they start locking doors, they start thinking, well, if this person wasn't what I thought, maybe my other neighbour isn't too. Um, it really does destroy that sort of small town community feel. Absolutely. I think it also affects yourself, you know, and, and your perceptions, because I think you get to a particular age and you go, oh, no, I'm a great judge of character. And then something really throws you and you're like, oh, wow, yep, I still know nothing. So that's terrifying as well. Yeah, it, you're, you're right. It really does make you question everything. And once you're in a state where you're questioning everything, truth gets very murky. Yeah. 
And I, I think that's why I sort of found this particular setting so perfect for this story. Mm. And also I think, you know, you can't just let one experience mar everything for you. You know, there are going to be mon- monsters amongst us, but they are a small percentage, thank goodness. Most people I like to believe are good people. <laughs> so I think it's important too to have perspective and think, you know, most people are good and, you know, if I was wrong once, it doesn't mean I'm going to be wrong again. I probably shouldn't lose, you know, faith in humanity because that's probably not where you want to go too fast in life. Now, I want to ask you a question because you are a journalist, you know, and you in crime as well, you know, you've worked in crime scenes and then you write about crime. Do you ever just feel like writing a rom-com, Catherine, and just <laughs> sort of moving away and giving your brain a bit of a break or is this you just love this and you're immersed in it so much? Yeah, I mean, I think I would struggle to write nonfiction. A lot of people say to me, oh, you know, why don't you do a true crime or true crime podcast or something? I think that's where I would personally draw the line because then for me it's just consuming my life. Mm -hmm. What I like about fiction and particularly my stories, there is a lot of, I guess, other storylines going on. It's not just all about the crime. You know, I do have little romances and domestic issues and a whole lot of other things going on through the book. So I probably feel like I get a bit of my rom-com stuff, you know, <laughs> um, out of the way. Um, but I certainly like playing with dark and light. Mm. And I really like that feeling that, you know, with a crime novel, you're able to play with the extremes of human emotion. Yeah, absolutely. I like um, what Jack Heath says about his Hangman series. He says, no, I'm a romance writer. The cannibals just, people get distracted by them. <laughs> true and I think sometimes you know crime as a genre gets a little bit of a bad rap in terms of you know like we're all just following this cookie cutter formula but I don't think that's actually true and quite often the really good books if you took the crime out the rest of the book is still good you know it's interesting absolutely and I've been talking a lot about crime and I love crime and I've been talking to lots of people about crime fiction and I I, I've come to the conclusion from talking to lots of people that crime actually has everything in it. So it has the psychology of human beings. It has the dark and the light. Like you said, it has those domestic relationships. It has the fear. It has the roller coaster. It has the thriller. Most of the time it has the nice resolution. You know, and I think it's it's a genre that really just has everything in it. And I think that's why it's it's so popular and not just popular now. It's always been popular. You know, I never thought of it like that. And I think you're probably right. People always ask me, why do you think crime's popular? And I always sort of answer, I think it's the mystery and people wanting to solve something. But I think you might have actually hit the nail on the head there because you're right. It does, I think a good crime novel, particularly these days, it needs to sustain itself on more than just the guts. Dead body. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really just a body count type story these days. Yeah, it's become really sophisticated, I think. And I think people expect that from their crime. They expect these human stories and this vulnerability and, you know, people trying to get themselves out of messes and things like that. I mean, that's what we love because when we see, you know, mess reflected from our own lives in fiction, we feel better about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I was actually going to say that I think flawed characters, you know, you can go too far with the flawed characters. But I do like that in crime it's okay to have characters that are not perfect and certainly in my books nearly all my characters I think are are very human you know they make mistakes they're a bit you know dorky or whatever they you know they're they're not sort of these snazzy perfect people yeah I really like that too and I also like you know when you get into a book you get into the head of people because you know if you have all these sort of you know thoughts that may not be nice in person you don't actually have to tell anyone but in a book you really get you know the full gamut of who they present themselves in public and what they're really thinking and I find that fascinating too. 
Yeah, I, I, I love all that. I love the idea of the persona we, we put out to the world and then what we really are yeah. like. And it's even more so, like we said, with social media, you know, and I always try and sort of say that, that yes, you know, use the beautiful pictures on Instagram and you use the beautiful filters, you know, for taking a picture of a book. But then I think, you know, you go to Twitter and go, well, I just had a really terrible day because my kid vomited in my car. So I think if you have a nice balance... It's actually a true story that happened to me this week. So I think if you have a nice balance between that, you're still going to keep life real. You know, let's have a balance here. And, you know, as we spoke about before, I was going to keep it a secret, but I'm in my pyjama pants. So, <laughs> you know, it's going to be balance, right? In fact, someone actually, I did an interview yesterday and someone said that my acknowledgements, I don't know if you've had a chance to read my acknowledgements, are the most honest acknowledgements they've read. I mentioned that you know I said something about having a meltdown while I wrote this book and probably having a meltdown the next time I write this book and they were really shocked they said but you seem like you're so together like you know and I said yeah but that's that's my persona (laughs) to people but when I'm actually writing the book it's not just sort of like ding 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 done next yes you You know start it and finish it in a couple of months and it's done look here publisher it's done far from the truth like you know I'll be sitting there in my pajamas for 12 hours a day just pulling my hair out Mm. and doubting every word I write um you know it's just never quite as glam as we pretend Mm. I do feel like there's a bit of a shift though and maybe it's just the conversations we have on the podcast but with authors being a lot more honest about their process and talking about the struggles and the doubt and you know even really accomplished authors still having doubt with their work so it's comforting in a way to think that you know, you, you, people are always feeling like that. But I also think that it, some self-doubt can actually propel you into creating better work, you know, because if you don't doubt anything, you probably won't change anything or be critical about your work. I guess you've got to find that balance. Mm-hmm. But some of that self-doubt can make you probably, I don't know, what do you think, create a better piece of work? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I struggle with it a lot, if I'm honest. And in fact, I, I've got sort of little social media groups with other authors and we talk about the fact that, you know, how hard it is to really particularly at the moment, my book's just come out. I'm supposed to be promoting my book. And sometimes I just want to hide under the covers and sort of pretend it's not happening because I am terrified about what people think and putting myself out there. And in fact, the week before this book came out, like I'm so proud of it and I love it and I'm really glad I did it. But I was saying to my publisher, oh, I don't feel good about this. Maybe we, can we just hold it? Can we hold it? Oh, no. We're not doing that. (laughs) this for a year Um, I think that's normal but you know I never know how much of that even myself to admit you know how much do I need to look like I'm this you know great put together person and how much can I admit that you know it's not always easy yeah I think we're all finding that balance but I think it's nice you know it's nice to know that people people are still real and they're having their own struggles not nice but it's just relatable I think you know it'd be great if you didn't have any struggles Catherine you just wrote your book from beginning to end (laughs) and it was finished in a month that I'd be very happy for you but it's also nice to have people that are relatable and you know because I think everyone that I've spoken to really struggles you know at different points you know of the writing process so I think that's part of being you know doing anything creative there is that struggle I guess now a question I do like to ask everyone is why do you write and why do you keep writing you know I've had time to think about this because last time we spoke I didn't give you a good answer so I've had (laughs) Well, that's why I added the keep writing. So that I've already asked you this, but you know, why do you keep writing? No, I love it. It's such a good question. And it really stumped me the first time (laughs) or preparation on my part. 
No, uh, it's it's probably my fault because I just spring this question on you. Now people are used to it. But when I just used to spring it up, they're like, what? I thought this was the end of the interview. Why are you asking me this deep question? <laughs> no, I, I've been very lucky that I've always had work that I love. I love being a journalist. But at the end of the day, it still feels like a job. Whereas when I write, I can truthfully say I, I never think I should be doing something else. It's the one activity in my life when I'm writing, I'm completely consumed, even if it's super hard and I'm hating myself and hating it, I know it's what I'm meant to be doing. And I can't describe that anymore, but it's just this sort of knowing inside I have that this is what I'm meant to be doing. I mean, that doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't mean that I keep getting books signed or anything else, but I think it's always going to motivate me to keep going because it just I just have this sense that this is what I am meant to be doing. Mm, I love that. Great answer. And I liked your answer before too. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I really like speaking to you and I love your book. So, you know, I was when your new book was coming out, I was like, oh, no, I have to speak to Catherine again. <laughs> so thank you for putting this new book out in the world. I don't think there's any reason to be worried about it. I've heard some really good things about it. I actually spoke to your agent, Jacinta Demarze, uh, yesterday and um, for the for the other series we've got going and um, very complimentary. So um I think it's a it's a really great book and a really great follow-up because there must be some anxiety with a follow-up book, I guess, or a second novel to, at some de- to some degree. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I was sort of doing the final edits just when Sticks and Stones came out and I started listening too much to people's sort of feedback on Sticks and Stones and then I was really questioning everything I did mm-hmm. and I had to learn to really switch off and not worry, you know, if people liked particular characters that I hadn't chosen to continue on and all this sort of stuff. And just be like, no, it's okay. Just do what you were planning and stick to it. Yep. Um, I have to say now I'm, I'm really happy and I'm, I'm thrilled it's out in the world. But, yeah, I definitely had a week where I was like, <laughs> doing this. And you're never going to please everyone. You know, imagine trying to take every single person's feedback on board. You wouldn't end up with much of a book because you can't possibly please everybody. No, that's, that's very true. And one thing I did learn after my first book for me was that just not to read. I actually don't read any reviews mm-hmm. now either ones I, I hear that's a good idea <laughs> well because you know I find if I got too excited by the great reviews I would get too devastated by the bad reviews and there's always going to be bad reviews whether that's just from someone who reads it next door or you know someone in a newspaper it doesn't matter so now I kind of for social media I do repost ones but I get someone else to read it and I say is this good or bad and they're like <laughs> good and I'll repost it but I still want to read it oh wow love that and I hear a lot of authors doing that you know you have to do whatever you need to do to protect yourself and to protect you know to you to some degree particularly when you're putting something out in the world that you know then kind of belongs to everybody else in a way you know you need to protect yourself from that so yeah I mean I also adopted the attitude which has really helped me that once the book is in the world it's not mine anymore whatever any other reader wants to make it and it's totally fine if they love it it's fine if they hate it it's fine it's not me you know and and sort of letting it go like a bird um but yeah it's it's been a a bit of a mission to get to that point yeah absolutely and I I imagine you would to and fro from that a little bit sometimes depending on how you're feeling I still like to give my book a little hug if I see it in the bookstore oh you should I love that (laughs) I'm going to hug your book now. I love that. I'm such a tactile person though. Like I have a Kindle and I think I've used it twice because I just love holding a book and people are like, can I send you the, you know, the very first, you know, arc on PDF. I'm like, "Eh, I'll just wait for the book. (laughs) I like to hold it. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for your time. We always have such a great conversation. Even in half an hour, we just, you know, cover so much and talk about so many interesting things. So thank you so much for your time. I, I loved The Girl Remains. And I know that if you're a fan of crime fiction or just human stories, because crime has everything, you can read more about it on the Words and Nerds website where you uh, did a guest blog post. So thank you for that as well. Yeah, you're very welcome. I love, love our chats.